You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, faster and cheaper alternatives to college with Ryan Craig. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to Journey to Launch podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome, welcome. Hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. If you are a returning listener, journeyer, that is, welcome back to the show. So today's episode, I am excited to bring you because you know I like to bring you tools that you can use in your toolbox and just insight and conversations that you can reflect on how it impacts your life. Perhaps it can help change the way you raise your kids if you have kids and just interact with other people in your circumstances. And so I want to bring you this conversation with Ryan Craig, who wrote the book, A New You. And in this book, Ryan talks about the faster and cheaper alternatives to college. And he brings up so many good points in this book and in general in this conversation, because if you are one of the many people afflicted by student loan debt, you took out a lot of student loans, went to a college or university and paid entirely too much for your degrees that maybe you didn't finish and that you're probably not using in your day-to-day job, then this would probably be very useful to you. And even if it's just something where you can now reflect on what you wish you would have known and then now how you can help others, maybe coming up, your children, future generations, and making the better decisions about the college process. And so in this episode, Ryan is going to talk about just the fact that we as just a society has moved into so many things that are faster and smarter and cheaper. And we still haven't done that necessarily with college. And so we're going to talk more about what he means, what things we can do to implement in the college system, in the education system to just have people make better decisions about alternatives to a higher education. If you want the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 88. And I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. Before we hop into this, love to hear your thoughts as usual. So tag me at journey to launch on social media. I'm journey to launch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also stick around at the end. I'm going to be reading a podcast review from Apple Podcasts. That's that purple app on your phone if you listen to this on your Apple phone. But listen, you can listen to this wherever you want. I'm just happy that you're listening. So continue to share this with your family and friends. Also stay tuned to the end for another exciting announcement about the Journey or Launch Club. That's my membership community. I'm planning something in a couple of weeks and I want you to be there. So just stick around for that. All right, without further ado, let's hop into this amazing conversation with Ryan. Hey, journeyers, really, really excited to bring you this very relevant and important conversation with Ryan Craig. Hi, Ryan. Hey there. So I was really intrigued by your book. Um, I get a lot of emails now, I guess, because I'm my podcast is getting more out there. People are becoming more interested to coming on the podcast. And so I get a lot of pitches to be on it, but I got an email about your book 
And I was immediately like, wow, I need to talk to this guy because the title of your book is called A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College. And the this just immediately struck me as something that would benefit my audience. And I got the copy of the book, started reading it. It's amazing. I think it gives really just concrete like background tips of how we can as a society, as individuals, like change and do things differently as in regards to college. So I wanted to have you on and share this great information with my audience. So thank you for being here. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to uh, try and uh, uh, share uh, what we've learned uh, over the past uh, decade or so about what's working in uh, traditional uh, higher education and what's not. Right, right. Now, just a little background on yourself. What made you get into this field? Why why spend so much time, um, so many years doing this? What's the passion or background behind it? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, look, I've been in uh, higher education for 20 years now. I started my career at Columbia University, been on all sides of it, helped build uh, universities, launch online uh, programs, uh, working with uh, with companies that partner with, uh, with, with universities. And so we sort of see all sides. And uh, from that uh, from that vantage point, uh, we've really seen what's happened to millennials uh, over the past uh, decade since the Great Recession. Um, and what's happened to millennials is is uh, is awful uh, in economic terms. Millennials have fallen behind prior generations on every economic metric in terms of wealth, income, home ownership, new business creation, uh, you name it. And uh, the reason for that, uh, high higher ed is uh, is is in part to blame. Uh, we've got uh, a crisis of college affordability, uh, which uh, I'm sure uh, your listeners are, are well aware of. But what they may be less aware of is the crisis of employability uh, as well. Uh, college grads are less likely to come out today uh, into a good job uh, than they were a decade ago, even though now we have a full employment economy. And, the, you know, the, the book explores uh, why that is and what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And what also, like you just touched upon saying that people – it's not only more expensive nowadays to go to college, but not only is that that fee higher, the cost higher, but again, people are not actually coming out as many of them graduating, getting getting good jobs or jobs that pay well enough to pay back the loans that they took out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, uh, the average student with loans graduates with about $40,000 in student loan debt. Uh, and that actually would be manageable if everyone graduated into a $60,000 a year job. Uh, but that's not happening, uh, unfortunately. But 45% of new graduates come out into underemployment, uh, meaning that they're 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 taking a job that they could have gotten without the investment of time and money and debt in that uh, in that degree. And uh, underemployment is uh, is severe. It means you're on average you're making about 10,000 less than someone who's who's properly employed, and it's persistent, uh, meaning that if you're underemployed in your first job. Uh, 50% of the time you'll be underemployed five years later and uh, uh, about the same uh, 10 years later. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, careers are, are path path dependent uh, and uh, getting a good job uh, at graduation is, uh, is important. Now, why has it changed? Well, it's changed because the economy has changed and higher ed hasn't kept up. Uh, so the economy has digitized. Uh, there are all kinds of jobs now that are requiring uh, digital skills uh, for entry-level jobs that traditional higher ed doesn't teach. Uh, for example, the most commonly used uh, software uh, SaaS platform in business is salesforce.com. Two weeks ago, I was at a meeting of uh, 250 college and university presidents and administrators, and I asked them, how many of your institutions train on Salesforce? Not one hand, 
went up. <laughs> so that's a, that's a, that's a problem uh, because uh, increasingly uh, technical skills uh, now outnumber all other skills in these entry-level job descriptions because employers are trying to sort of filter out uh, those those candidates who just don't have the, uh, the, uh, the 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 skills, so it's a combination of the economy changed changing and hiring the hiring process actually uh, actually changing. If you don't have uh, the technical or digital skills, in all likelihood you'll you, you'll be invisible uh, to the hiring managers. You'll submit your resume, and if you don't have a sufficient density of keywords uh, that match the job description, you'll be filtered out. Uh, by the applicant tracking system, uh, because there's so many ap- applications for every online job posting uh, that uh, hiring managers just don't look. They can't look at every resume. So they'll only look at those that make it through the hiring filter. And uh, if you don't have the technical skills, you're going to be filtered out. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. That's, that, that's where this idea of last mile training uh, came from, uh, which is you actually look at the skills that are listed in entry-level job descriptions and work backwards uh, from right, those and- skills. And I want to get definitely more into that because while we're going to talk about kind of the state of what it is and like why, how we got here, I definitely want to sh- now talk about what we can do differently, what the plan is, what, what can we, what can we do differently? Cause it's not about just, oh, now I'm in this situation or I don't have any control over my future or my kids future now. Like what are the things we can implement? But before we get into that, you know, that lack of colleges implementing the things that we need to learn that our kids need to learn is like off base, like you said, with what's happening today in society, like the millennials nowadays. And you mentioned this in your book that everything is faster and cheaper nowadays, how you, how you rent a movie or how you watch shows, how you get transportation. Like we've figured out all these cool ways to do it cheaper and faster. But then the way we now look at our like education, it's still a lot of the old structure um, comes into play. So we have not, change as fast as everything else. And so why is that? Why do you think it's been so laggard, this evolution of education? I know there are like now more concepts and new things that we're going to talk about, but why has it taken so long for the education world to come up to speed to where we are today? Well, you know, we have a, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, for the last 40 or 50 years, the bachelor's degree uh, has really been the only pathway uh, to, uh, you know, a successful career uh, in America with few exceptions. Right. If you want to you want to have a shot uh, at success in America, you go to college, uh, you get a you get a degree. And so the demand for these programs uh, has has been such, you know, as a result of that sort of social status that we've placed uh, on the degree the colleges and universities haven't felt the need to change, right? If you've got a line out the door, uh, still, why, why, why change your product? Uh, and, of course, the, the, the people making the decisions uh, in colleges and universities, they're not going into uh, to, 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 to becoming a, a professor uh, because they're excited. Uh, they're, they're motivated uh, by equipping uh, their students with the skills that employers are looking for in entry-level jobs. That's not why they teach. They teach because they're passionate about the subject, because they love their research, because they love interacting with students. But, you know, if you ask the average faculty member, you know, uh, do you share the goal uh, of aligning uh, curriculum uh, with workforce needs? Most will say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, and that's, uh, you know, that will remain the case uh, until students begin voting with their feet and going to other options, faster and cheaper uh, alternatives that lead directly to the good jobs that college grads are increasingly having a hard time finding. 
Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's so many like inputs in this, right? Because there's like so many people have a stake in this and need to actually change. Um, but like there's the students who oftentimes are young, right? You're in, you know, 17, 18 now coming out of school. And so you have the option to maybe make a choice, but it's not just as, it's not just simple as that because then you have parents who are also not necessarily forcing. I'm sure some parents do force that idea, but are funneling their kids through the system because they think that's the best idea. And then so it's harder for maybe the kid to have their own um, autonomy in that process because it's so it's a lot like, well, hey, this is like this is your best shot. This is how you're going to do this. And then of course you have the you know the higher education. You have the employment factors where maybe some employers are not hiring without this basic college degree. So this seems like there are so many inputs that need to change um, and realign to make this all work better. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's, there's lots of factors. Uh, we think that uh, the critical factor is the uh, supply of seats uh, in these faster and cheaper programs uh, with demonstrable results uh, leading to uh, great first jobs. And uh, given the option, uh, there are millions of young people who would uh, willingly uh, choose these programs uh, over college. But right now, we're still in the early days. And what this book is about, it's sort of a map uh, of the early days of these all alternative programs. And in the back, there's a directory of about 250 of these uh, these programs that are already out there. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the like fundamental issues like with college and the system today. So, I mean, the biggest one, or maybe not the biggest, but the one that stands out the most is the cost, right? So the cost of education has has increased way more than even inflation. And so it's like this absorbent amount of like fees to go to school and not just like the tuition, but room and board and books and all the other things that come along with it. So let's talk about like what's actually wrong today with the system. <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the uh, college and university uh, uh, tuition uh, has risen at about twice the rate of inflation for the past 30 years. Um, and, uh, there's lots of reasons, uh, for that, but the main reason is that, uh, you know, consumers aren't being asked, uh, to pay, uh, upfront for that. They're being asked to take on more debt. So all of that, uh, all of that increase, uh, is, uh, is being uh, reflected in higher debt loads, uh, the students are taking on. Uh, and now we know that, uh, students who graduated between 2006 and 2011, uh, one third of them are, have already defaulted. Uh, on their student loans. Uh, So it's unsustainable. The level of debt that students are taking on to uh, pay uh, not only the tuition, uh, but the room and board and the cost of living uh, to attend uh, college for four and increasingly five or six years, which is sometimes what it takes uh, to earn uh, a bachelor's degree, uh, what with, uh, you know, needing to uh, take extra credits or life getting in the way or whatnot. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's unsustainable, uh, for many, many young people, particularly for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for, for students from, uh, families, uh, of, uh, sort of low socioeconomic background. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it's incredibly challenging. Why have colleges and universities been able to raise uh, tuition at this rate? Because no one has told them they can't, <laughs> uh, because there continues to be students who are willing to, uh, take on the debt, uh, to do that. But we're, we're starting to see that change, uh, as mm-hmm. I say. There, there, there's reason to believe colleges and universities are having to increase their discount rates, uh, meaning that their the net price uh, is uh, is increasing at a at a, at a slower uh, at a slower rate, uh, and there are lots of uh, uh, small and mid-sized non-selective universities, particularly in rural 
and suburban areas uh, that are finding that their enrollments are falling now far short uh, of their uh, of their goals. So uh, students, their students are, are, are telling them that the financial aid packages that they're being offered are insufficient and there's no way that it makes sense for me to attend this institution. And if I graduate, you know, I'll have $60,000 in debt. Like why? Right, <laughs> what's right. The, what's the, again, and, and, and we think that that, uh, that that value proposition is thrown into stark relief uh, by new programs uh, that, 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 that are coming to market uh, that say uh, not only uh, are you not being asked uh, to take on debt, uh, we're not even going to charge you tuition. Uh, maybe we'll even pay you uh, while you're going to school, uh, and we're going to guarantee you a job uh, in, in exactly the field you wanted uh, in the first place. Uh, so why would you then take the economic risk uh, of uh, going to college, maybe risking you don't graduate, uh, and taking on that debt? Mm-hmm. And also, like what you said, like, you know, now this generation, I, like, I think I forgot like the exact saying, I think you mentioned in your book, too, about, you know, maybe it's not the Facebook generation anymore. It's the student loan debt, like generation. Yep. And I think because of that, though, um, so now like these like people who have graduated with the student loan debt that have defaulted, like the one third that have defaulted. Those now that now start having kids that will now start going to college, they'll start hopefully, um, funneling their kids or, or advising their kids differently, which is why I definitely think this change is like eminent. So while unfortunately we had to go through this, like this generation had to go through this, like false promise of, you know, taking out all these loans and not being able to pay it back for education. Now, because we've lived it now, when we have children, we won't, we won't hopefully steer them in the same way. We will have them make better decisions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that within 20 years, this looks totally different, uh, but I think it happens even sooner than that. Uh, I make the point uh, uh, that, uh, you know, if, if your friend were to tell you uh, that her daughter is coming out as a debutante, you know, what would your reaction be, right? You'd be like, that's sort of old-fashioned and elitist and unnecessary. Um, and query in a decade, if your friend tells you that her daughter uh, is earning a degree, uh, earning a bachelor's degree uh, at a college or university, might you feel the same way, uh, particularly particularly when there are thousands of uh, faster and cheaper alternatives that lead uh, to the great jobs in technology and healthcare uh, that college grads uh, want to get and increasingly are having having trouble getting. Right, right, and you like talk about this like in general, like so this like whole idea of um, going to college while it's you know back in the day, like I mean there were a lot of reasons why like after like the the war and all these things that the the construct and the idea of college became more popular but not only is it kind of just like a badge of like social honor and economic honor as like the student maybe like where they go to school but it's for the parents too like you mentioned that too in the book that I actually like that you talked about it because a lot of times I think parents mean really well. Um, like, for example, I know for my mom coming here as an immigrant, like she knew that education would be key for her to get ahead. And she also advised me and pushed me to that. And I think that's why I'm in the position I am today. But a lot of that, too, is it's almost like that social status. It's, it's almost as good to the ego, to the parents that, to say, oh, my kids went to college. Um, sure. Also, yep. right? Well, right. It's, the, it's been the only path. Uh, as I've said, it's the only it's the only path. And that's changing. Uh, that's changing. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, coding, uh, for example, uh, there are lots of people who, you know, work as software developers who, you know, uh, don't have degrees and probably look down on people who've, you know, wasted the time and money in getting degrees. And let me just be clear. 
Uh, I don't think it's a waste. I think colleges and universities do a good job, maybe as, as good a job as they've ever done at equipping young people with the critical thinking skills and problem solving skills and cognitive skills that they're going to need uh, long term. Uh, the question is what they need for the first job. Uh, and oftentimes what they need for the first job is not that. Uh, it's more uh, technical digital skills and soft skills. And uh, the cognitive skill building, uh, they can do that later. Uh, as, as I say in the book, I'm not arguing for less post-secondary education. Uh, that would be economic suicide in, the, in this global knowledge economy. But what we do need uh, is to uh, sort of radically restage uh, and rethink how we consume a post-secondary education. It doesn't have to be all you can eat in one sitting, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can get what you need when you need it. Uh, and you can take a faster and cheaper pathway to a good first job, uh, work for a couple years, have no debt, make some money, uh, look around, uh, ascertain uh, what uh, additional uh, education pathway program certificate you need in order to move on, move up, develop your critical thinking, problem solving skills, become a manager. Uh, take that and move on and move up. And so what I'm describing here, people in, in education have talked for decades about the goal of achieving uh, sort of a lifelong learning system where people continue to learn over the course of their lives. And that's what that that's what emerges from this faster and cheaper revolution uh, is that when you go from a, a model where uh, the view is that you do all you can eat in one sitting and you're done by the age of 22 or 23 or 24 to a model uh, where you do what you need to get into the workforce, you look around and you'll be probably engaging in five to 10 formal post-secondary programs over the course of your career, getting what you need when you need it. That is lifelong learning. And that happens as a result of this faster and cheaper revolution. Right. And I love that you talked about that lifelong learning. I've had those conversations with past guests about just how outdated the system is and how we learn. I mean, even I can speak for myself, and I know a lot of people can relate to this, is that most of the things, 90% of the things that I learned in school, once I started my job, like, had no, like, application. Like, the, it was so outdated by the time I got there or just was never touched upon. Just like you said, you went to this meeting and Salesforce, which is, like, the biggest thing in a lot of uh, companies, like, no one is teaching them that. Okay, so I don't only want to make this about, like, what's wrong, right? Like, we're going to talk about solutions and, like, what is on the new front age or edge of this type of learning. And right. so let's talk about the different like frameworks. So what are the new options available to people today? Sure. Well, so the earliest option were these tuition pay boot camps, uh, which makes sense, right? Because they're sort of very similar to traditional college. Uh, you kind of pay money uh, and you pursue a program and you graduate and you kind of, you know, hope to find a job. And so there's, there's lots of uh, examples of these uh, tuition pay boot camps uh, in the book that last anywhere from you know, uh, eight weeks to a year in length. And it's not just uh, uh, coding or even IT. There, there are uh, boot camp models in sales, uh, in digital marketing, uh, in insurance, financial services, uh, uh, medical devices. Uh, what they all have in common is that there's a technical or digital uh, component. Uh, it's really focused on equipping you with the digital skills you need uh, to, be, uh, to be able to do that, uh, do that job. Uh, and so that's what they do. They're, they're, they're generally also uh, in person. Uh, so these are not online programs. They're immersive uh, because in addition to the technical skills, employers really need to see the soft skills as well. And what these programs look like, they look more like a work, a workplace than they do like a classroom. You're working on projects uh, with fellow students. Uh, these are hopefully real world projects that come from employers, the employers you're going to go work for uh, at the end. 
uh, you're being mentored uh, by uh, instructors or sometimes even by the by the uh, by the employers uh, and you complete and you go to work for the employers. Now, the early programs didn't guarantee you uh, a job. Uh, and that's really where we're seeing uh, change. We're also seeing change in terms of the financial risk. So, so the next generation of these programs are what we call income share programs or college MVPs, minimum viable products. Uh, and the idea there is that uh, you're not being asked to take a financial risk. You don't pay tuition. You're not taking on debt. What instead you what, what, what you're what you're being asked to do instead is to enter into a contract with the school, with the provider that says that you'll pay back after you complete the program and once you get a job, if your income is over a certain level, say $40,000 a year, you will share, you know, 5, 8, 10% of your income for three or four years back to the school. So that's called an income share agreement and it really uh, uh, limits the financial risk. If you don't have a good employment outcome, you're not going to be asked to pay the tuition uh, for the program and most of these tuition uh, pay boot camps are now converting to an income share model because it's just easier uh, for the uh, for the student. It just reduces the financial financial risk. And then in that case, it you know motivates not not only the student to get the job, but it motivates then the the boot camp to make sure the student gets the job because they that's how they get paid back. Well, that's right. It it sends a very clear signal uh, up front to the student that uh, we're aligned with you. We don't get paid unless you get paid, uh, and that's a powerful. Signal and obviously contrasts sharply uh, with the traditional world of higher education today where nobody does that. Okay, so, so I have a couple questions around that because that sounds amazing. And I'm just like, all right, that needs to be in every city. We need some more seats for that. But so one, how viable, like how are there a lot of those programs that exist today and are those hard to get in? Because then the barrier for getting in, you know, they're going to want to make sure they choose students that are going to like that's right. live up to their that's promise. Right. So like how does the average person get into something like that? Uh, and I would say uh, a lot of cities have these programs now, uh, you know, whether it's, it may be a coding program or a digital marketing program or a, a, a UI UX uh, design uh, program, uh, but a lot of cities do have them. So, yeah, they're selective, but uh, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, they they betting on their curriculum, right? So uh, they believe that their curriculum is in demand, uh, and if they think you can do the program, uh, they'll they'll admit you, uh, and they'll make a bet uh, on you. Now, what are some other? So the uh, the in person boot camp is like one model. What are some other models? Um, of this faster and cheaper way of creating yeah. models that uh, that we're most excited about are what we call uh, employer pay models, uh, where uh, there's uh, there's actually no not only no financial risk uh, to the student, but where you're actually guaranteed a job uh, at the end. And these models take two different forms. First model is uh, what we call a staffing model, uh, where there are staffing companies that will essentially hire you uh, before uh, you start the training. And uh, you uh, you're you're guaranteed a job. Uh, so you're being paid uh, for the for the duration of the training. You're not actually you're not asked to pay. You're actually being paid as an employee. Uh, you complete the training and then you're staffed out uh, to a client. And uh, the uh, the deal is that you you commit to work uh, for that staffing company for a period of time. So it's sort of like ROTC type model. Uh, you're committing to that staffing company, and then ninety percent of the time you get hired by the end client. Uh, so it's not only a pathway to your first job. It's a pathway to your second job uh, as well. You'll work first for the staffing company and then for the end client. And that really helps uh, the, the, the employer because it gives them the opportunity to try before they buy. Uh, so we see those models growing very rapidly 
uh, in a whole host of, uh, of areas. So those are employer pay staffing. The cousin to those models is what we call the uh, apprenticeship uh, model. Now, apprenticeships have been around for uh, a long time, and you might have heard of them in the context of tra- traditional uh, industrial and building trades, you know, plumber, welder, those sorts of things. We're starting to see them now in new areas like software development and IT. Um, and uh, in, that, in that case, you're literally going to work uh, for a company as an apprentice, uh, and you're doing, uh, you're providing services for their clients, and then you're going to get hired by their clients. Uh, so there are models like Tectonic, uh, for example, uh, based in in Denver, uh, that uh, that does uh, does that. And that's that's uh, I, th- those are more competitive. Obviously, the models where you're being paid uh, are more competitive. But uh, they're literally bringing in thousands of young people a year into these programs, and that's the ideal. Uh, value proposition uh, for the uh, for the student, right? You're being paid and you're being guaranteed a job. Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of these type of programs, like you, you mentioned that there are different industries. It just doesn't have to be like coding, but a lot of them do have that digital uh, like oh, yeah. component to it because that's my like question around this is that what if you're not um, necessarily into like coding and tech? Are, are, what other fields of like what other career fields can this work for? Well, I mean, the, the, the thing to think about this is, this is a common misconception. Uh, most entry-level jobs now are actually technical jobs uh, because the best way to think about an entry-level job working in a mid-size or big company is that you are using some sort of software or a SaaS platform to manage a business function. Now, a decade ago, that was you know probably a paper-based function. And so the, the technical or digital element of that or the software element of that uh, was, was not present or less important. Uh, today, uh, it's really important, and specifically, it figures very prominently in the job description. Uh, so, uh, again, entry level, entry level jobs uh, in sales uh, that uh, a decade ago were great jobs uh, for, uh, for new college grads. Today, most of those jobs will require two years of Salesforce uh, experience. Uh, so, they're not entry level jobs uh, any anymore. And so, when we say uh, technology or IT jobs. Really, what we're saying is most entry-level jobs, uh, which uh, have a very strong digital or technical component uh, to what they do. And the last mile training doesn't need to be extensive, right? If it's just a function of learning a software platform, you can do that in four or six weeks. Uh, You can master that. And so that's what these programs do. You know, you might ask, well, why don't colleges and universities teach that? I have the same question. Right. Well, and I want to go back to the last mile training because you brought it up briefly, but we didn't really get into that because it's that it's that type of training that the colleges are not doing, but that's what's needed to get the, these to these positions. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Last mile training is is just really uh, it's the digital training, the digital training that colleges aren't doing that is listed uh, in the entry level job descriptions, and uh, it could be software. And keep in mind that it could be software for a function like sales. Uh, it could be software for an industry like insurance claim processing software, and that that may not sound exciting, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, those are those are great jobs uh, for edge for for uh, you know entry level jobs uh, for young people to you know process insurance claims for an insurance company. You can move on, move up, just like sales jobs. You know are great jobs. You have lots of very successful business people who started in sales. Um, so I think you know the the uh, if this book does anything uh, in the higher education world, the reality is that you know we have a whole. Uh, industry of 4,000 uh, institutions uh, in America who really haven't given much thought uh, to uh, uh, hiring and entry-level hiring in particular 
outside of the sort of career services uh, function, which in the larger scheme of things is fairly marginalized uh, within the institution. Uh, and the point here is that these institutions don't keep going uh, unless they can convince uh, students going forward uh, that their programs lead to good first jobs. Uh, and so uh, doing that is going to require significant change. And I'm actually not convinced that lots of institutions can make those make those changes the way they're currently structured. So, you know, what what we're positing is that these new last mile training programs uh, will uh, which today many of them are are top up programs, meaning they're programs that college grads uh, are, have to take in addition in order to get jobs. But more and more of them uh, are really viable replacements uh, to to college. They're true alternatives uh, to college. Uh, you can you can enter one of these programs like Tectonic, you know, with a high school uh, diploma. Uh, and within six months, uh, you are a you know sort of fully functional software developer billing out on your way to getting a great job uh, with one of Tectonics clients. Mm-hmm. Now I wonder, like you said, like these companies also have to want to change, and the way they do that is if they can't get valuable or people or young students coming to them wanting jobs. So the motivation for these companies, like there, there needs to be obviously motivation from all sides, the companies and the colleges. So with this last mile training or with the companies that are now hiring, <clears throat> what shifts do they need to do now to like demand that uh, they see more students have this? And then if they do make those demands, then will the colleges change the way they structure things? Cause what, let's just say, right. Colleges, you know, keep the high prices, but then add these, last mile trainings as, but it's still the high cost of college. Right. Um, I guess like what happens then? Well, uh, that helps. I mean, those, the schools that do that are going to find, uh, that they're, uh, you know, better positioned in terms of enrollment, uh, for sure. But you know, if I'm, if I have a pathway to a guaranteed job, uh, that doesn't require debt versus one that, uh, you know, uh, is going to take four years, uh, or more and is going to ask me to take on $50,000 worth of debt. I know which one I'm taking. Uh, at least <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, and I think that this, the social status uh, of the degree uh, will sort of keep that equation more balanced for a number of years. But in time, uh, you then go to being sort of that, uh, you know, debutante, uh, <laughs> debutante uh, uh, model where, you know, yeah, it's expensive, but uh, sort of old fashioned. Right, right. And another model is the online boot camp model, right? So not necessarily where you need to go in person to a, these programs, but you can take them online. And you talk about that. Um, but I want to like talk about more why you some of these don't go as well. Um, yeah, the boot camp yeah, model. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually, you know, it's funny, I'm, I've helped build uh, very on, large online programs in my career. Um, but I'm actually pretty skeptical about the ability of a 100% online program sort of close the gap uh, between high school and a good first job. And the reason for that is that it's not just about technical skills. It's also about soft skills. Uh, And I haven't seen an online program that actually uh, uh, furthers uh, soft skills in a significant way uh, in the way that uh, these immersive boot camp programs do. Uh, So I think employers are going to look to these immersive boot camp uh, programs uh, much more than they would to an online program where maybe you're getting the technical skills, but you're definitely not getting soft skills. Mm-hmm. And but the and the the thing is the online boot camp I would think is less expensive if you have to do if you do pay up front and then more accessible to people who you know can't go in person and can work or learn from anywhere. So it would be good if the model worked, and I guess there are going to be changes in that too. Um, but it's interesting. Okay, Agreed. so. 
Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about, I'd say, just the like the idea that some people are still going to choose to go to college. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if there are specific um, professions they want to get into. And you do need like a degree or a certain certain document, right? Like that that college degree document that says you, you did that work. So you talk about how to choose to go to like a college and you have like this selective versus non-selective process and decision making. Yeah. How can we go, go through that process and help people out there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, uh, over the past 20 years or so, the sort of college decision uh, for most families has been about where to go to college, not whether to go uh, to college. And so the big idea here is that as the number of programs, uh, faster and cheaper programs that leads to good, that lead to good first jobs, uh, proliferates and expands uh, over the next five years. Uh, we're going to go from a college decision, which is about where to go, to you know whether to go to college. Because if there if there are alternatives, uh, it really poses the question: Is this a good a good idea? Uh, and I suggest that you look at two factors. One is selectivity of the college, and the other is affordability. Uh, if it's a selective school uh, and it's affordable, uh, no one will be a bigger champion than me. Uh, you should go. Uh, even What's a selective school? Sorry, let's right. talk about what yeah. that is. Yeah. So selective school is a school that accepts fewer than 50% of applicants. Uh, so there are only about 200 of them in the country. Uh, but the value uh, of uh, of these uh, of these selective uh, of these selective programs uh, goes well beyond uh, sort of the education. It's the value of the brand, the alumni network, uh, all these things. Uh, so. Uh, you, uh, if you can get into a selective school, uh, you should stretch, uh, even stretch the definition of affordability, uh, is my, is my recommendation. If you can make it, uh, if you can make it work, uh, do it. If you get into a selective school, uh, conversely, uh, if you're looking at a non-selective, uh, school, you need to be a lot more careful, uh, because the value of that, uh, credential is lower. Uh, there's no, there's no question, uh, about it. Uh, and so you should be quite strict uh, on the affordability uh, guidelines. And I, I, I choose in terms of what's affordable, what's not affordable. I use what uh, the Lumina Foundation, which is a, a leading foundation in higher education, has uh, has uh, has said. They call the rule of ten. Uh, and uh, the rule of ten uh, is pretty clear. If you're making, uh, if your family, your ho- your family uh, household income is fifty thousand uh, dollars, you should not be spending more than sixteen thousand dollars in total, out of pocket plus debt. Uh, over the course of the degree, and there aren't a whole lot of institutions that pass that. <laughs> pass yeah, that test. wow. <laughs> if, you, if you if you're making a hundred thousand dollars, the rule of ten says it's the total amount that you should be spending your family, you out of pocket debt uh, over the four years is sixty four thousand dollars. So it's uh, again, uh, you're not going to find a lot of private uh, schools in the country that pass that test, and lots of public schools won't pass it either. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if, if you're looking at non-selective school and it doesn't pass the affordability test, my point is that you should see a bright flashing red light and you should look, think very, very hard and look at alternatives before you make a decision to enroll, uh, in that program. And again, the the book uh, provides a directory of about 250 of these alternative programs. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I've heard too, was about looking at what you expect your salary to be when you graduate and if it's going to be, you know, not above the amount of 
the cost or the debt that you're taking out, then it's not worth it. So for example, if you're going to get, if you're going to be a teacher possibly, and you're going to, you know that the starting salary for the teacher and where you want to work is thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, then you should not be going into debt and taking out $100,000 over the course of your career. I, I forgot the actual calculation, but yeah. No, it's, you know, you have to be able to, you know, uh, making a decision where, you know, even if you're successful in graduating and getting the job, that you're not going to be able to make your loan payments or making your loan payments will essentially require you to live in poverty for a decade. Not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And like you said, so the selective schools are the schools like the Harvards and Stanford, you'd say, and then the non-selective would be maybe a state school or not the well, no, there are, there are There are lots of selective schools that are, you know, think about the, the, uh, the flagship uh, universities or large public systems, you know, there's a big difference between UNC Chapel Hill and UNC Greensboro, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the, the value of that, uh, of that, of that degree or UT Austin and UT El Paso. Um, so, uh, one is selective, uh, one is not. Uh, and if you're looking at UT El Paso and you're going to graduate with, uh, you know, $40,000 in student loan debt, which is not just the cost of tuition, but the cost of living, um, uh, and, uh, you know, you have to, if you're from a, if your family can afford that again, you know, I don't want to discourage people, people who have the means to do so. Uh, if you're from a wealthy family and you can afford, uh, to, uh, invest in your education like that, and you're really not worried about, you're not going to starve if you don't get a great first job, you know, go do it. You're young, only young once, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately that's not, that doesn't describe most people. Uh, most people are from, uh, from families, uh, that are of modest means, uh, and uh, they are really focused on getting a good first job. If you survey young people today and you ask them why they're enrolling in a post-secondary institution, uh, 90 plus percent will tell you they're doing so to get a good job or a good first job. Uh, so we have a very pragmatic generation now of young people who are very focused on the first job. And if you're focused on the first job, you know uh, you shouldn't be blinded by the you know college is worth it at any cost argument. Uh, you should be, you should look at programs that can lead to a good first job, recognizing that you can always go back, uh, and get more post-secondary education later. Right. Right. And I, I'm glad you talked about just the, why you think about the motivation behind it, because now my next question about this whole process is that for people who are underrepresented or, you know, immigrants or people of color who, who do have to fight a little bit harder and like to put themselves um, up against like their white male counterparts, does this proposition of the college degree still matter a lot more for them um, versus maybe someone else who can get away with not having it? Or do you think these programs now will help to, to not only make everything affordable for more people, so it doesn't matter maybe more of your background because it's more affordable, but it's going to be helpful to put more people on the even playing field, of at least just the degree part of things? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think it's really all about the first job. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, if you're going to a program which can get you to a better first job, your second job, your third job, those employers are going to care a lot more uh, about what your first job was and demonstration of your competency uh, than they will whether or not you have that, uh, you know, formal credential. And that's not true of every employer, but I think a lot of employers increasingly, that's how employers are thinking. Okay. Now, have you heard of the FIRE movement? Are you aware of the financial independent retire early? Movement? No, I'm not. That's... I'm not. Okay. 
So just look quickly, you know, this, this movement of saving and investing your money aggressively so that you can have the option to retire early. Most people maybe quit their corporate job, start a business or travel the world, whatever they choose to do. And it's because they've optimized their finances over a course of a few years. And so I believe that this topic about college education and ways to go about it in different ways to then maybe not pay as much and not go into much debt is very relevant to people who want to start this journey or who are on this journey and especially for the ones that have kids because a lot of us listening right now maybe have already gone through this so it's more about educate educating our kids or the younger generation that's coming up behind us but i would think that this falls really well into that because you can eliminate like the reason why a lot of people can't reach financial independence or it's going to take them longer is because of their debt especially student loan debt so to have these options available to them would be a great tool in their toolbox of reaching financial freedom because now there's an option to attain that job, that well-paying, you know, first job and career without the debt that saddled. You, you have, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams running for governor of, uh, of Georgia, a classmate of mine actually in law school. Uh, she, according to media reports, has hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt at the age of 44. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there are probably others in that same uh, in that same boat. It, it, it's really uh, what's happened to millennials is 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 awful. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I want to help uh, change things. So Gen Z coming up now doesn't have the same uh, the same issues. I, I'm, I'm very concerned. You know, you look at millennials, there's um, you know, there was a poll that came out a couple of years ago that said 51 percent of millennials don't believe in capitalism anymore. And 40% think that socialism would be a good idea. And whatever your political uh, views, uh, it obviously, you know, says bad things about the state uh, of our economy for young people uh, if they don't believe that a system is working. They don't believe the system is working because uh, it's not. Uh, they're not getting good jobs uh, coming out, and uh, they're coming out into, uh, uh, you know, student with with, with excess uh, excessive student loan debt. Uh, so it has to change. Right, right. And I guess I should clarify that it's, you know, this is also the big thing with the retire early movement is that 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 part actually trips a lot of people up because one, a lot of people don't see that they can ever retire even with like on time and anyway, like they're not even on track to retire properly. So retiring early for a lot of people is out of context when you first look at it. And that is true. But um, I think more of this option now to not have to go into so much debt to get a good job and to get an education and to go into the workforce is appealing to people who want to start out. Like, so for my kids who are very young, who want to start out to at least be smarter with their money from jump, from, you know, from they graduate, that they don't, they're not saddled with this debt so that they can save and invest more of their money because more of their, more of their take home pay and their income can go towards saving and investing instead of debt. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, um, I would hope that, uh, Young people who pursue faster and cheaper pathways and find themselves in a better economic place at the age of 25 or 30 uh, would think about spending uh, some of that the, that additional uh, uh, income on additional post-secondary education as well, right? There's no question, you know, you're not done. If you pursue a three to six month faster and cheaper pathway to a good job, uh, you're not doing yourself a service if you think that you're you're complete with your post-secondary education. You're going to need more. Um, and so, but you're going to be in a better place to A, decide uh, what it is you need uh, and B, afford it uh, if you're looking, making that decision once you're 24 or 28 or 32. Right, right. Okay, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing this information. Please let listeners know where they can find more about you and the book. Uh, well, the book is called A New You, 
Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College. Uh, and it's available at Amazon and also at Ben Bella Books. Uh, and I, uh, the best way to find me is I tweet at, uh, uh, at Ryan Craig UV, at Ryan Craig UV. Okay, and I will link all that in the episode show notes so listeners can um, go there um, to find more about you. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Craig. I believe we touched upon a lot of great just points about the current system, where it is today, where it can go, where we can take it as a society, and then hopefully prevent future generations from taking out all this college loan debt, right? That's just keeping you back that you can't a lot of you guys are struggling to pay off so i hope you gained a lot from that conversation again if you want the episode show notes go to journey to launch.com slash episode 88 now at the beginning of the podcast i said i was going to read a review from apple Podcasts. so that's that purple app on your phone and i'm saying purple app so much because i did have someone tell me that they didn't know what i meant when i said the the Apple podcast app. And so she said she heard me say purple app and that the light bulb went off and that's where she knew how to find it. So that's why I keep saying purple app, just in case someone does not know where to find this podcast app on their iPhone. Okay. So let me just read a review and this is from a is for always saving. She says, thank you. Journey to launch serves as a means of financial motivation for those of us wanting more out of life. Episode 74 tackled some deep, touchy topics that many of us have concerns about. This was the first podcast that I ever listened to when I desperately wanted to get out of an abusive relationship and needed to save money to get out. Without realizing, she helped me save and stash $10,000 on a low-income weekend job, which allowed me to get out. Today, I am a happy, safe, single Black mother with a tripled income on a journey to financial independence. Thank you. Wow. You know, sometimes I forget how how this podcast, how this message can affect and impact your lives. And when I read things like that, it really touches me. So I'm so glad um, for you. And I'm glad for all of you who have started the journey, no matter where you are, I'm hoping you can gain something, some resource or tool or motivation that you can use on your own path to financial freedom. So if you want to leave me a podcast review, if you listen to this in Apple Podcasts, please do so. I read everyone and you can hear it on the podcast. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be hosting something pretty cool. I want to give you guys more insight about some cool things happening in the Journey or Launch Club. I mean, we are packed with content. We had a career class a couple of weeks ago. We have a tax class. We have some investing classes um, in the month of March. So a lot of exciting concepts and content that you're learning in the Launch Club. If you are not a member, you should check it out at journeytolaunch.com slash launch club. I'll be having some more information about a just special event that I'm doing towards the end of the month. So make sure you're on my weekly newsletter list to make sure you are in the know of everything that's going on. That's journeytolaunch.com slash join if you want to make sure you're on my newsletter list. And just can't wait for you to just see all the amazing content and things I have in store. All right, journeyers, until next week, keep on journeying. <laughs>